Uh, I'd like to share a story with you guys. Um, recently, my daughter turned four years old. Her name is Nora, and she is a, a cutie. She is, she's very cute. I have a younger brother. Uh, he's, he's not as cute. Um, he's five years younger than me, and his name is John. Uh, John, when he was four years old, uh, we actually uh, um, couldn't find him. We, we lost him at the beach. Uh, I'd like to share that story with you guys. Uh, we grew up in Singapore. Singapore is an island nation. Uh, we weren't crazy rich Asians, but on the weekends, uh, we would go to East Coast Parkway, which is a beach. A local equivalent of that would be uh, Newport Beach Pier. Uh, a lot of bikes, a lot of people, delicious restaurants. Uh, we usually go there for good seafood. And this time, we went a little before dinner. We rent, rent, rented some bikes as a family. Uh, before our meal, uh, my brother was on his little tricycle. And he was so happy, he was riding it all over the place, and before we knew it, he just took off. And uh, he followed the bike trail, and it was the weekend, and it was crowded, and all of a sudden, he was gone. Uh, we couldn't find him. My mom started calling out his Korean name, which is Taehyun, so she was like, Taehyun-a! Taehyun-a! He was nowhere to be seen. Uh, we ran back to the restaurant where we were frequented, and the workers there, a brother and a sister, it's a family restaurant, they helped us. They started to look for John as well. By this time, my mom was in a panic, and she was screaming his name. We were desperately looking for him. My mom was crying, becoming more and more hysterical by the moment. Almost an hour went by, and we, we, we couldn't find him. We asked strangers if they saw a little kid on a tricycle. No one had seen him. Our whole family, we were feeling a deep sense of hopelessness, uh, fearing the worst. All of a sudden, my dad spots my brother riding his uh, tricycle towards us in a distance. Uh, my brother was crying. Uh, uh, we were crying. Uh, we ran to him. Uh, it was an indescribable moment. Uh, sheer panic at one point uh, to deep hopelessness and then pure elation and joy. The restaurant workers were so happy for us, they were crying tears of joy as well, just as we were. Uh, my brother in his excitement had gone so fast uh, as fast as he could on that rented bike. And uh, later, many years later, he told me that he couldn't see mom and dad, uh, so he got scared. So he started crying. And because he was crying, he couldn't see anything. But he kept on pedaling. And he kept on pedaling and pedaling. And he comes to a point where he just literally couldn't see anything in front of him. So he stopped. He wiped his tears, and he was at the edge of a cliff. So he... There was nowhere, it was the end of the trail. So he just turned around and just straight all over again. And that's when uh, uh, um, uh, he paddled back, and that's how we found him. He, he went to the very edge of the beach and came back, back to us. And we ate dinner at that restaurant that night. We still had to eat. Our whole family, uh, my brother included, ate some really good food. Uh, my favorite food is uh, the most delicious Singaporean chili crab. Uh, but I digress. And, and, and now... Many years later, 25 years later, when we go back to that family-owned seafood restaurant, the workers still talk about that day, the day that we lost and found my brother. It's like this, this story that brings up every time we eat there. Um, today, our passage is from Luke 15, and there are three parables. Uh, we'll be mainly focusing on the last one, uh, but we need to set up the context, okay? The book of Luke, uh, uh, I spoke on this the last time I got to speak. The book of Luke is, the book of Luke, uh, uh, I spoke on Luke chapter 4 the last time, where Jesus was reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he was revealing God's heart for the lost, for the outsider, for the captive. 
Jesus reveals the compassionate heart of God, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And Luke carries this theme throughout the gospel and also into his other book, the book of Acts. Luke is also unique as there are many meals being depicted. I love meals, and so I get really interested. It's like, what are they eating in the Bible right now? Jesus cooked some fish. What did that taste like? I'm thinking about these things. Um, Luke uses these uh, meals as teaching moments, providing lessons on evangelism, justice, and the kingdom. Meals reflect social values of the culture, revealing the importance of social class, prominence, and rank. For this reason, the meals in Luke illustrate the countercultural message of the kingdom of God. And so uh, as we uh, dive into this, um, in Luke 15, we find Jesus hanging out, breaking bread with tax collectors and notorious sinners. If you just didn't know, maybe you're new to this uh, uh, Bible thing, tax collectors are hated. Uh, they're kind of, uh, the, they're Jews themselves, but they take money from their own people and they give it to the oppressed uh, government that, that they're under. And yet, at the same time, they're skimming off the top. They're making money off of their own people. They're the scum of the earth, right? That's this, they're hated people. And yet, Jesus is hanging out, breaking bread uh, with tax collectors and notorious sinners. This offends the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. Um, and this theme of being offended by Jesus uh, via the, the Pharisees, um, the, how offended they are, is a theme throughout the book of Luke. In fact, these self-righteous religious leaders are always trying to trap Jesus with some theological debate, or they're always grumbling and complaining about the company that Jesus keeps. And so if you have your Bibles, we are going to read um, all of uh, Luke 15. So it's a long passage. Uh, we'll read this together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends, neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let me pause real quick. Pods, if you're wondering, they're not delicious, but the pigs are eating it. And from my study, the pods are not digestible by human, human uh, digestive organs. Like, we can't really eat it. It'll just pass through us. The pigs, they can eat it. And so, and, and just FYI, pigs are, in the Jewish culture, 
disgusting. They're dirty. And yet, he's watching pigs eat something that is not edible, and yet he's hungry. And this is how hungry he is. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came uh, to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us celebrate, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. I imagine a very large Korean barbecue going on. I mean, the fattened calf, the, the fattest cow they have, and they're having a celebration, a feast. That is why I love the book of Luke. Now, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, uh, what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Um, just the way that these three parables are structured, I don't know if you caught it, something is lost, and then something is found, and then there's a huge, uh, big celebration. This happens for the sheep, the coin, the son. Uh, uh, today, we'll be focusing on the prodigal son's parable, um, but I wanted to give the whole context of what's going on. There's a repeated structure of something being lost, something being found, a huge celebration, and that is the kingdom of God. When something is lost, and then that when that something is found, there is a huge celebration. Um, we need to start from the beginning. Uh, we need to understand the context. Why does Jesus even tell these three stories? All right. Um, oh, oh. Thank you. Um, in the beginning, it says, in the beginning of chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. They were attracted to Jesus for some reason. These sinners, these outsiders, they felt drawn to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eat with them. Right? In the NIV, it says the man welcomes sinners. Right? The Greek word for receives or welcome is prostekomai. Right? Power is mine. Maybe you can help me. Oh, I didn't turn it on. That's my bad. Yes, I have the power. All right. Prosdekamai. Fancy Greek word. I got to put my, all the money I spent in seminary to good use. Um, <laughs> Prosdekamai is a Greek word, and it means to receive or to welcome, to receive favor, uh, favorably, take up, receive, welcome. Uh, but it also has a secondary meaning. Um, uh, a lot of Greek words have a semantic range, and they have multiple meanings. And another meaning is to look forward to, 
to wait for. The waiting is an interesting concept here, okay? Um, the prosdekamai is used in, in the Lucan account a few times, but it's actually mostly used not just to welcome, but it's mostly used for the waiting for or the looking forward to uh, a side of that definition. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, um, there are two elderly characters, Simeon and Anna. Do you guys remember them? Um, there's a story of how Simeon is waiting, prosdekamai, for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting. He's waiting. Right? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And there's another story of an older widow named Anna. And she'd been living in the temple. And, uh, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Um, this context of Luke chapter 2, Jesus had just been born. Uh, uh, Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus to the temple uh, for ceremonial things. And uh, Simeon, this old man, uh, gives a prophetic word to Mary, but he's overjoyed because he's been waiting all his life. Anna has been waiting all her life for the consolation of, uh, of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And Simeon and Anna are waiting for God to send the Messiah, and they're waiting for the kingdom of God to come down on earth. Uh, it is curious to me that prosdekomai is used by Luke as the word of choice of the grumbling Pharisees in Luke 15. Is this not what Israel has been waiting for? By not receiving the sinner, the Pharisees, in effect, are not receiving Jesus. They're not receiving Jesus, but as the father in the parable we just read, he receives the son. For the father has been waiting for the moment to receive his son. Just as the shepherd was waiting to find the sheep, or the woman who was waiting to find the coin, or my mom waiting to find my brother. There is a huge celebration when the father finally finds the lost son. Uh, inversely, Simeon and Anna have been waiting their whole lives, as Israel as a people have been waiting for so long for the coming of the Messiah. Simeon and Anna are both filled with joy and gratitude because they've seen the Messiah in Luke chapter 2. Um, so in fact, in the beginning of Luke 15, the religious leaders grumbling reveal their unwelcoming position when it comes to sinners, but it also reveals their unwelcoming position towards Jesus. Um, mainly because Jesus, a rabbi, a holy man himself, he welcomes sinners. He receives them kindly. Um, in my studies, there is another Greek word uh, that has this thematic uh, relation to prosekamai. It, it is the word for for or distant. Um, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Um, the word for far is makros. It has two meanings as well. One is uh, pertaining to taking a relatively long time. Long. We'll file that away. We'll use that in a second. The second definition, pertaining to being um, relatively distant, far away. We're talking about distance here. Far off. He goes to a far-off country, it says. Um, the Gentiles are far from God. And yet, according to Luke, Jesus' disciples are sent out to welcome those that are far off to the kingdom. They need to, if you read Acts, they need to leave Jerusalem. After the Holy Spirit comes, they need to leave Jerusalem to go to Samaria, to go to Judea, to the ends of the earth, it says. They need to go to these far-off lands to reach these far-off people. And it's this theme that Luke writes all throughout the book of Luke and Acts as well. Um, I don't know. 
this, this question of being far off is a very interesting concept for me. Uh, have you ever been in a long-distance relationship? Uh, when I was uh, um, dating my wife, we, we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time, and uh, we were doing long-distance. I was given an opportunity to start a church in uh, a Bangkok, at Thailand, and uh, that's very far from here, just in case you didn't know. Uh, and she was here in California, and uh, there is a 16-hour time difference uh, from there and here, and it sucks. Um, it's challenging. And, uh, when, when we were doing this long-distance relationship, this is uh, 2005. It's been a while. Skype had just come on the scene, and so there's a lot of echoes and delays and I would raise my voice because I was getting frustrated. And Annette would be like, are you mad at me? I'm like, no, I'm mad at Skype because it's not working, because there's a delay. And, you know, we were already so far away from each other. And that delay was not helping, man. I was so angry. And every once in a while in Thailand, the power goes out. And the AC doesn't work. And you're sweating. And I can't call her because the internet is, is down. So I would go to the 7-Eleven, buy a $50 phone card that only lasts for 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? And so, and because of the 16-hour time difference, it would be when Annette was getting ready for work, and she would get in her car, and she has like a 10, 15-minute commute to work. And during that time would be right about the time I'm about to fall asleep, and I'm barely hanging on to consciousness. And I call her then. She just woke up. Um, my wife is not a morning person, and so uh, we're, we're having this conversation. I'm like half asleep, and she is, she just, she's half awake, and, so, and, and we're half a world apart. And uh, a, a, a long-distance relationship is so hard that I, in good conscience, would not even wish that on my worst enemy. There's no way. It's, it just, it's horrible, right? And here we are talking about people who are far off. Right? Uh, maybe here we are, sitting in this sanctuary, and we might still feel like we're far from God, for whatever reason. Is that true? Is that not true? Is that how I feel? Or is that a reality? Um, the son is coming back. He rose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. This word in the Greek is makron, the same cognate word of makros, and it's the idea of being far. And the father embraces him, right? Kisses him, receives him, welcomes him. And the older brother, in contrast, is grumbling. He hears the music and dancing. Do you, ha- do you have a friend like that? There's people having a good time, and he's not, right? He finds out that his brother is back. He's incensed. He does not want to go in Uh, And the father actually comes out to receive his older son into the party. But he doesn't seem, um, uh, he doesn't seem like he's going to come in. He actually accuses, he doesn't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours, I imagine a finger being, being out, this son of yours who has devoured, right? In other words, wasted his inheritance on prostitutes. That was never said. It just said while living. But with the finger up, he says, Wasted on prostitutes, right? And in contrast, he claims that he has never left. The older brother has been so faithful. He's stuck around. He's followed all his commands, he says. Um, The older brother, the older son, thinks that he's close to the father. And physically speaking, he's right. 
he's never left. Uh, he is not Macron. He's not far off physically. But I say he is far off from the Father's heart. And even so, the Father welcomes him and receives him kindly by saying, but son, all I have is yours. Come into the party. We actually don't know if the older son uh, goes in or not. We don't know. It's open-ended. Um, uh, but it seems to me, uh, this is my own opinion, I, I'm not sure. I don't, know, I don't know if he stayed in the family. Is that the breaking point where all those years of dedication in his eyes and seeing his dad wasting more money on this, this son of yours, what would he decide? Would he humble himself and walk in and give his brother a hug? Or would he say, no, never again? And maybe he walks away from the family. I don't know. That's not necessarily the point, but I don't know what the older brother would choose. And it's interesting because in Jesus' storytelling, he kind of keeps that open-ended as well. This might be obvious, but there is a connection here between the older brother and the Pharisee. The Pharisee and the scribes. Luke later uh, in chapter 20, brings this together with the word makros. And again, the first definition of, 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 of long, all right, being long-winded, if you will. In Luke 20, 45 to 47, um, there is this warning that Jesus gives. Uh, if, I mean, this whole thing should be in red because Jesus is speaking. It says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. That long is, is not that word. And love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour. And this word for devour is not wasting like his brother devoured his inheritance. This devour is stealing, robbing. They're robbing widows' houses and for pretense make macross prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Man, this word hit me so hard because I grew up in Presbyterian churches where the elders prayed some long prayers, bro. I was like, wait a minute. Are they talking about those guys? Um, this word for long prayers here is, is that makros, a cognitive makron, which means far or long. And these long prayers, and I contest that Luke is showing how far off the older brother is, just as Jesus is showing here in this verse how far off these religious leaders are from Yahweh's heart. One thing we need to understand in terms of context, is the prodigal son story uh, is that it was told to an Eastern audience. Does that make sense? Jesus was, you know, in Jerusalem, in, in, in the Middle East, and he's speaking the story, um, to be exact, is the people of the ancient Near East. That's where the Bible's story is located in time and place and space, as opposed to more of a, maybe a Western mindset that we may have. So the stories hit us a little bit differently, and there's some key cultural things that you have to be uh, kind of in tune to what the ancient Near East valued, uh, or there's taboos in that too. And so we might not hear the same story as maybe they heard it. And one, there are many things here, many layers, but one cultural insight is the theme of shame. Now, maybe some of us, we are maybe very aware of that. Uh, the son shames himself because he demands the money from his father and takes it to a far-off land. He squanders it. And when the son returns in verse 20, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And kissed him. The father running is countercultural, right? This is from a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Um, why is that countercultural? Why is running countercultural? In the ancient Near East, 
only people that ran were slaves or kids for a, a, a rich, well-to-do Middle Eastern man to run is scandalous. So you need to understand when Jesus says this father runs, people in the audience are like, oh my goodness, right? It's not like, oh wow, he's really fit like David. He likes to run. No, it is shameful, right? The father running is countercultural. This parable depicts a father who leaves the comfort and security of his home and humiliates himself before the village. The coming down and going out to his son is a parable of incarnation. The costly demonstration of unexpected love in the village street demonstrates a part of the meaning. As the father runs to the street, half the village runs after him. The father's actions are a drama of reconciliation that can restore the boy to his home and to his community after this scene. No one, my apologies, no one in the village can reject or despise him. Why is the village angry? Why? Well, when the son wanted his inheritance, when he wanted to go off to far off land, it's not like they had cash laying around. I mean, this is property that they own. It's a short sale. He sold his property real quick to give some money to his son. And a lot of uh, commentators think they may have sold it to Gentile people, to non-Jewish people. This land, this holy land, if you will, that's part of their inheritance, but they've sold inheritance. They sold the inheritance to give that money to that son. There are some theories that say that these lands were sold to outsiders. And so the people around the area, they're not happy. It's not just a personal family affair. This is a community affair. And so when the father runs, he's moved compassionately, but there is there's a story of wanting to protect his son from being beat up, being, being accused um, by others when he's coming home. Um, I got one ahead. All right. The father uh, covers his shame. I've already showed you that. And that's what's happening here. As the father runs through the street, um, the half the village, they're following him, Right? This is a scandal, like I said, for a well-to-do, grown Middle Eastern man to run after something. The father is protecting the son by shaming himself, right? And that's, that's a countercultural concept. It's a knee-jerk reaction, a visceral compassion reaction to a son who's broken and hungry. Jesus, in the eyes of the Pharisees, was shaming himself by receiving and welcoming uh, the tax collectors. Uh, However, Jesus is moved by compassion to receive the sinners. He ultimately dies uh, a criminal's death on the cross, which is very shameful. Uh, Jesus is foreshadowing a very shameful act that he will be enduring to receive the sinners of the world. Um, One more thing that I need to add. In the ancient Near East, for a host, even today, for a host to leave his own party it's actually a pretty shameful thing to do. And so the father, what does he do? He leaves the party because he hears that the older brother is not coming into the party. So as a host, to leave the party, he goes after another son. He goes after the older brother. right? He goes after him to welcome him. Um, I believe that God's heart is not just for those who know that they're far off. I believe that God's heart is for those that don't even know that they're far off. 
How good is our God? And that father in this story models that for us. He's the one that receives the younger son, and he's also the one that receives the older son. Um, you know that typically when uh, this kind of parable is, is, is taught in Sunday school, um, they ask you the typical question, like, where are you in the story, right? Are you, do you identify yourself as the, the younger son who is far from God, or are you, are you the older brother who is indignant, indignant and self-righteous and kind of feel like, I've done enough, you know, I've, I've done good works? Uh, and do you find yourself in the story? And I think that's a very legitimate question. Maybe that question is, is uh, relevant today as well. Um, but I wonder if a better question can be asked, you know? I wonder if the question maybe for us is, how do we become like the Father? How do we become like the Father who chooses to receive this broken, uh, lost son? And how do we become like the Father who receives um, an indignant, self-righteous son as well? And, and that is the gospel. That is the good news. This, this story that we just read is a gospel within the gospel. And... Um, I close with these statements. The father covers over their shame. Both sons. Both sons make a mistake, and the father shames himself, and in doing so, he covers over their shame. Um, I believe that we are called to become like the father, right? We can identify ourselves in that story because we are lost in our ways, and we can be self-righteous in our ways. I think it's a beautiful picture of that. But it doesn't stop there. It invites us it welcomes us into another level of growth and maturity, not because we're perfect, but because we want to be more like Christ. We want to be more like God. Um, to become people that receive and welcome those that are far off. Right? I believe that is the gospel, and that's what we're being called as a church. Right? Um, so my question to you today is this. Um, maybe we can... In this reflection, just, just bow our heads, and uh, I won't be praying right away. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and then, and then we'll pray. But if you can kind of close your eyes where you're at. Uh, where are you? Again, physically, we are here, here in this Olive Crest building on the border of Santa Ana and Tustin. We, you know, the zip code, we are here. Uh, and yet, where are we? Where is our heart? Where is our mind? Where is our spirit? Are you far off? Are you lost? Is your heart far off? Is your heart lost? We just read today, Luke 15, probably a passage that you've heard preached multiple, multiple times. And I hope it wasn't white noise today. I hope you heard uh, the good news in, 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 a, in a new light. Uh, these concepts, I'm sure, are, are familiar to you. But these, this message of the good news, this gospel, is not for that person over there who are far off is not that person over there who is self-righteous. This gospel is for you. Where are you? The Father is running to you. And he wants to cover you. He wants to cover your shame. He wants to cover your brokenness. He wants to meet you where you are. If you understand the story, the son didn't have to go wash up, clean up, uh, you know, make a good living, and then come back home. No. 
He came tattered, broken, hungry. That is how he comes. And that is who the father embraces. He puts his arm around him. When he kisses his son, it's a continual kissing. It's, I can't believe you're back. The joy that he finds in finding his son. This is, I believe, the precursor of the cross. That Jesus will be cursed on that tree instead of us on that tree. Let us pray together. Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful that the good news is truly good news. That we are broken and we're lost and we don't have what it takes to save ourselves. Lord, you embrace us. You run after us. You're moved with compassion. We're so grateful for that. And though maybe we've experienced that in the past, we may have forgotten and gotten lost. We may not have left physically this church or a church, but maybe our minds and our heart has gone far off because of other distractions or just the mundaneness of life. We feel like we've done all that is necessary. And we're demanding that um, our needs be met. And our Father is saying, no, come into this party where we receive and welcome those that are far off. And everything I have is yours. I believe the Father wants to remind us, wherever we are, wherever we are on that journey with him, that he, he wants to cover us. He wants to receive and welcome us. That he wants us to be about the Father's business. That he wants us to be the one with his hands and his feet to receive those that are lost, to receive those that are indignant. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you speak to every single person in this room. That the good news is not for somebody else. That the good news is for them. And that you are for them, not against them. That you call us just as we are so that we can become more like you. In Jesus' name I pray.